Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast all about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. I am Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined today by the Friday crew. I have in one corner, Natasha Mascarenas. Natasha, I have talked to you more this week than even I would like. How are you doing? <laughs> it's been a delight, Alex, but I agree completely. Let's not talk yeah. anymore. No, no. I, I, after this, I'm taking 24 hours. No, Natasha. Marianne, I've talked to you less, but also I'm tired of people. So how are you doing? I am doing really, really well. Super impressed with all that you guys have done this week with you know YC and everything else. But I'm happy to be here. Yes. And the reason why Natasha and I have been talking so much is that uh, she was in charge of our Y Combinator demo day coverage. We did much. We even did a Twitter space that we are going to put out, I believe, by the time you hear this tomorrow on Saturday. It was good fun. And frankly, we have a lot of great YC coverage. So if you care about demo day and want to dive more deeply into that, uh, we have a show. We have posts. You have it. Just go read it. It's literally in a bow package for yes. you. <laughs> Just go do that. Yeah. <laughs> Beautifully packaged. <laughs> we are not doing a lot of YC today because there's a lot of other news to get through, including uh, deals of the week. Um, Kim Kardashian's in there, user pilot, and a company called Varho. Then we're talking about uh, acquisitions in the grocery space. Cooler than you think. And then funds and the LP perspective with some good news there. And then if we have time, we're going to talk a little bit about AI and the creator economy. It's going to be a blast. Uh, but first, Natasha, Kim Kardashian uh, has been on TechCrunch before because she made a game back in the day that ended huh. up grossing tons and tons of money. And so she's been on our pages. She's been in our orbit here and there. But this is a plot twist. Oh my God. So Kim Kardashian made her world into um, the capital management space <laughs> this week. So news broke that she is launching a private equity firm called Sky Partners with her notorious 2Ks in the middle of Sky. Um, and it's with the ex-Carlisle consumer head, Jay Sammons. It's all about investing in businesses across, unsurprisingly, consumer products, hospitality, luxury, digital commerce, and media. Something that Kim Kardashian and the Kardashian family at large has a ton of opinions on and honestly, a successful track record in. So we don't know a lot of details about it, but we do know they're making their first investment before the end of the year and they're hoping to raise pretty soon. So they don't have a fund yet. So essentially they've announced the formation of the firm, but they haven't kind of done the first close on the fund. Yeah, exactly. It's in the works. It's going to be making an investment. I, I imagine they're not going to have a ton of trouble raising. Um, and particularly interesting, it's not a venture capital firm. It's a private equity firm. Yeah, I thought it was interting that Jay Sammons, um, the, the Carlisle, ex-Carlisle consumer head that they're teaming up with. Apparently, they've been longtime friends. He's been friends with the Kardashians for a while and um, approached them, approached Kim and her momager. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Momager? I love it. And that's totally right. Okay. Chris Jenner <laughs> <laughs> with the idea to start the business. So um, not only is Kim Kardashian involved, but her mother as well. She's joining as a partner. Oh my God. It is goals in every way. For listeners who are not very familiar with uh, with pop culture, as it were. Um, who can give me a reasonable thumbnail on Kim Kardashian in 30 seconds? Oh, my God. Natasha. And she's, she's just in charge of so many different businesses today. Obviously, uh, a lot of people know her from Keeping Up With The Kardashians, The Kardashians. I think she's, like, one of the smartest people in social media and just has a lot of, like, I think like her her reputation right now is, like, she keeps putting out new businesses and new brand deals working with Balenciaga. She had a breakup with Pete Davidson. 
She has skims. There's like so many worlds. She has skims, which made her a billionaire, right? I mean, it was most recently valued at $3.2 billion um, undergarment, loungewear brand, uh, like shapewear. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm impressed that it's like worth so much money. She launched a skincare brand as well. And th- there's just, it's kind of like a laundry list at this point, which I think is part of the, it's part of the thing. Like that is on purpose. Yeah. There is one thing that she's doing that I have to admit that had me kind of scratching my head a little bit. Um, she's get, having her own true crime podcast. I missed this. Called The System. Like that kind of threw me for a loop. Oh my God. I was like, I'm, I know that she was in, she was in law school. She right? passed the baby she bar. Passed the baby bar. Yeah. Yeah. But like true crime, which I love. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love true crime stuff, but I just didn't expect that from Kim Kardashian. I, I mean, at this point, I I expect everything from her, given that she's been doing pretty much the gamut. Um, I want to explain what I think is going on here with the fund, and then you guys can tell me uh, where I am on this. So uh, the ex-Carlisle dude was involved with, I think, Beats, so has some experience in building consumer brands that end up selling for quite a lot of money. Um, Kim Kardashian has and helps drive kind of the pulse of culture, if you will, in, in a lot of places. And so if you take someone with um, business savvy and cultural knowledge, take them with someone who's a lot of uh, kind of capital experience and exit experience in consumer brands, mash them together. In theory, it's not a bad synergistic investment pitch. 100%. Yeah. I mean, the uh, Salmon's guy also um, invested in Supreme as well as Beats by Dre. So I, I see your point there, Alex. Okay. I take it all back. I hate Supreme. Oh, no. So I'm going <laughs> to... I'm sorry, Supreme Supreme's one of those brands that like it, it's like a logo that you wear and everyone's like, oh my gosh. It's oh my Supreme. God. Don't let Panzer. It's so you. annoying. <laughs> I, I don't think Panzer listens to this show, so we're safe. But like uh, I think this is cool. And I, I also just want to say, like, when Kim Kardashian put out her game back in the day, um, she was a, a little bit more of a, a, a risible figure. She was less respected, I felt like. She was well known, but not as uh, iconic as I think she is now. Iconic, fine, yeah. Totally. It's like very much like uh when when you're a trendsetter of that caliber, you're not doing like startup partnerships or angel investing, you're starting a private equity firm for late stage companies that you can then sell for a higher value just because of your involvement in it. And I think Erica Winger, the head of platform at Work Life Ventures, had a really good tweet. We'll link in the show notes, kind of why she thinks Kardashian started a private equity firm versus venture capital firm. To me, it's like kind of uh, like even like a bandwidth thing of like, instead of starting her own companies, she can just acquire them and and make them bigger in their own way. And it just feels like kind of a level up and like quote unquote influencer partnerships and startups like it's no longer necessarily just like a a brand deal it's like i'm just gonna own the brand actually and i think we're seeing this more often i mean i'm gonna make an make an ass of myself here but uh charlie d'amelio from tiktok yeah 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 i mean like they're they're building an empire is my impression they're not just taking influencer checks from people to promote water or whatever they're building durable long-lasting fortresses of capital and you know what Shout out. That's business. I'm here Hell for yeah. It, it kind of reminds me of your tweet you did earlier this week, Alex, where you were like, it's kind of crazy that like startups and venture because of Kanye's Instagram posts are becoming such a part of like normal discourse. And I feel like mm-hmm. just like, yeah, like a broadening of like how to be smart about your money also gets people to be a little bit more selfish, which makes me happy. There's nothing more American than the financialization of culture. All right. Um, let's hard pivot to SAS. Marianne. Uh, <laughs> yes, serious hard pivot indeed. Uh, there, yeah. There's no way to get around that. Uh, user pilot, what's going on? 
Yeah, we're talking about a company called UserPilot just raised $4.6 million in seed funding. They described as a product-led growth platform for SaaS companies. I'm going to try to sum this up as simply as possible. And Alex, you can help me out here if you'd like. They're trying to help these SaaS companies um, not only more easily get new customers and onboard new customers, but like keep them. And what they're trying to do is help the companies like build features in that like make it make it easier to do so they're like more customized to their users I'm like am i describing this very well alex help me out here. so it's a little bit tough because if you don't know what this is it's hard to explain um uh let me try by example to kind of back you up here marianne uh, if mm-hmm. you've ever gone to a new service like let's say you sign up for otter the uh transcription service that uses ai to kind of parse through transcripts and so forth if you're a new user it might provide prompts inside the actual like web app itself to click here and do this and if you click there it'll bring up another little pop up and say click here my read of what user pilots doing is that instead of having rigid defined user paths through applications like we've seen with companies like walk me and the other one that I forget the name of, Pendo. Pendo. There you go. Is that Pendo? Yeah. Yeah, Pendo. Mm-hmm. I think, Marianne, UserPilot is a little bit more intelligent. And so, like, depending on what you do, it might amend the path it shows you. Oh, so it's, like, more personalized and more customized based on what the user's doing, their behavior, I, right? I think that's the twist. Okay. I had yeah. the same, like, kind of first reaction because I was like, okay, there are so many startups in this space. So I imagine the startup could only exist and land around, I think, 700 paying customers including like UiPath Oracle, if it was that much better. Like there's yeah. no way you can be average in this I was really like, impressed. So yeah, I was impressed <laughs> by their customer base. Yeah, UiPath, Oracle, McGraw-Hill. Um, so that's that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that's some big companies. Also, doesn't UserPilot just sound like a company that was founded in like 1997 and is worth like $50 billion <laughs> and we all forgot about it? It really does. I'll be honest. I'll be honest. But uh, it's a branding choice. Yeah. If you said like UserPilot buys UiPath, I would have gone, I don't know who that is, but okay. Um, oh my God. That is so true. That is so true. <laughs> look, sorry, UserPilot. We don't mean to talk trash, but also a little bit of trash. Um, but congrats <laughs> on your $4.6 million raise. Um, we've, we've dallied a little bit, so I'm going to scoot us to our last uh, bit of money here um a company called we believe varho v-a-r-g-o has raised a 40 million dollar series d and the question that we had was what the hell is xr because we're familiar with vr virtual reality we're familiar with ar augmented reality so what is xr extended reality it turns out it's ar with a different letter so that's simple. That's enough. literally it. Yep, that's my read. I was poking around the, their website. Uh, what the company does, it's European. They make headsets that are super fancy and cool, and they are building a cloud platform to allow people to kind of pipe VR and XR experiences directly okay. to your headset so you don't have to have that processing power on your local GPU. If you don't know what that means, you probably don't care about what GPU you have, so this is going to be for you, but industrial-focused. So Natasha Marianne, not going to be for, for consumer gaming is my read, but more for industrial applications, enterprise sales, that sort of thing impressions i mean i have to admit like i was trying to understand where enterprises industrial use like how how would that work well the example what are you going to use it for well you can uh put on this headset and you can look at like cars in space they have this like demo this like kia dashboard and how high fidelity it can be so i think that it might be a way to like bring people into complex environments that might help complete a sale or show off a particular wear or good. So not like me going to like 
the Supreme store to buy an overpriced t-shirt so I can fit in with the other right. people who don't have their own sense of creative fashion. Um, but instead more the ability to look around the world and see things in, in, in situ. That's a butchering, but it's hmm. close-ish. It feels, it, it felt like from, from the, the high level I was introduced to the VR space and AR space through EdTech really, it was like, that was kind of like the time where people were trying to like find specific ways to make products that already work, work to educate people. And so I kind of, like got the same vibe when I was reading about this startup because it seems like it's trying to be a somewhat generalist tool, like not try and sell to consumers who are just like very fickle <laughs> and instead sell to enterprises who like maybe have a more predictable type of need. So I don't know, to me, that made a lot of sense to see them go this route, even though it's a little harder to understand or a little harder to kind of be buzzy in the traditional sense. Well, enterprises also have more money. So the per headset cost probably doesn't matter quite as much as the consumer world. And also as they improve the technology, the state of the art, if you will, hopefully that'll trickle down to more consumer friendly stuff so we can also wear it. And uh, a quick correction, uh, V-A-R-J-O, not V-A-R-G-O. And I apologize for that mistake. It's Varho, not Vargo. Um, all right, we're going to move on now to the world of grocery delivery and two of the best named companies in the world, sorry, user pilot, <laughs> are in fact teaming up. So Natasha, what's going on with the misfits and the imperfects? This completely flew under the radar, but online grocery company Misfits Market acquired another grocery company called Imperfect Foods. For anyone who's even kind of tuned in to grocery delivery, Imperfect Foods was pretty of like a pretty well-known brand. Um, I, I put it up there with a lot of the other big brands we know of. And so I was super shocked to see actually a younger company acquiring an older company. In this case, Misfits Market was founded in 2018. Imperfect Foods founded in 2015. Um, and so kind of like a, a flex on Misfits working with the Imperfects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there were a lot of cool things about this deal. First of all, uh, kudos to Christine Hall, who wrote the story. She did a really good job of describing what they both do, why this deal matters. Um, and so I, I found it a, a great read. One of the things I found really interesting about these two companies and that I actually love is um, they both have a focus on eliminating food waste. This has long been something that I, I feel is extremely important in this country because there is so much of it, right? There's so much food waste. Um, so they, they've they estimated that they've collectively rescued nearly 500, millions, 500 wow. million pounds of food that may have otherwise gone to waste. I don't know exactly how they did that, but um, if so, that is damn impressive and I applaud it and I hope they keep that up. Food waste in America is is a, is a problem that's uh, multifactorial, so you're not going to solve it with any single thing. But uh, one example is that often um, chains and bakeries and so forth will actually just throw away food at the end of the day versus, uh, sorry, unsold food at the end of a working day, as opposed to donating it or giving it away. There's probably some legal liability stuff there, but um, there's ways to combat this. My my local uh, bakery chain, Seven Stars, has a big sign up on the back of their um, their bread section. It's like, we donate all leftover food. Love it. Oh, wow. That is a way to eliminate waste. But another way is what Imperfect Foods and Misfits do, which is essentially sell you ugly ass eggplants. The stuff that people don't want because it's not attractive, but it's just as nutritious and healthy. So essentially, if you want to rescue that homely apple, you can now <laughs> do it with these companies. I love that. There's a there's a restaurant in SF. This is like kind of a sidebar, but it's called Shuggy's Trash Pie, and it's a climate-friendly restaurant, and it's all about basically using like bruised and ugly vegetables and quote-unquote trash and food waste into as they describe, unforgettable dishes. It's kind of popping up on TikTok right now, or at least like SF TikTok. And so I, I'm really curious on going. And I feel like there's 
there's a partnership that could totally make sense here. I, I loved seeing it entering a restaurant space because for so long, Imperfect Foods felt like the only example of something like this. Yeah. But Marianne, what blew me away was just how much money these companies have raised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it was, let's see, over 500, yeah, nearly 530 million for Misfits Market um, and about 229 million for Imperfect Foods. So um, lots of funding. Both of them um, have raised over the years. I, I think it's great that they saw that they could team up and be more powerful together than separate. Um, also, they're trying to to reach a, a billion dollars in sales, which um, the CEO, what's his name in Misfits Market, Abhi Ramesh, he said that that would allow the company to reach profitability and they're aiming to do that in early 2024. And he said that he didn't think that would be possible if they had remained two separate companies, but together they could be a powerhouse. Yeah, it's economies of scale, right? Like if they if they're, if they team up and they get the integration right, they'll essentially have more scale. And that leads to, in a lower margin business like grocery, I presume, enough gross profit to run your operating costs. So it kind of kind of makes sense. Alex, what's your take on the fact that it's like an all-stock deal? That is like the weird part here. We don't know price. And I don't really know what an all-stock deal means in an acquisition like this. So like I guess if it's good or bad. <laughs> uh it's it's neutral to a degree. Okay. We often see this when a company, I don't know, like pick pick a hot company last year. Um, let's use hop ramp. Ramp. Okay. Ramp's good. Ramp's a good example. Uh, what, Ramp, whose valuation went up very aggressively during the last 12, 18 months, as Mariana's chronicles well for us, um, has a lot of stock value. They have a lot of shares. They have a lot of value that they can create shares against. Their per share price has gone up. And so if you're a company that wants to conserve cash, well, you might want to use stock to make an acquisition. And my read of this deal in the case of Misfits and Imperfect is that essentially uh, they're going to issue shares to buy the other company and mm-hmm. therefore dilute the existing shareholders, but they're bringing in enough value in the process that everyone kind of wins. So it, it's a way to facilitate a transaction that doesn't actually uh, reduce the cash position of the combined entity. Okay. Okay. I like that. I, I think like, yeah, so- sometimes you kind of, in, in my head, I was like, oh, is it drama between seeing like a better capitalized younger startup buying like an older startup that didn't choose that much money? But as we all know, the amount that someone raises does not necessarily it means that they are more or less successful. No, Very I true. Mean, what was the name of that company that was down in like Florida that was doing the headsets? Um, magically. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing they did was just spend all the money, turns out. Um, but this is not the only bit of grocery acquisition out there. In fact, Instacart, uh, Natasha, has purchased a very cutely named company. Oh my God, so cute. Their name is Rosie. Instacart acquired Rosie. Um, one of the first acquisitions I've seen from Instacart in a long time, and it's all about, it's an e-commerce platform for local and independent retailers and wholesalers. We don't know the financial terms of the deal, but I mean, it was it was a pretty small company. It only raised around $12 million to date. Um, and it just really helps like independent grocers like power their flow, fulfillment, customer insights. I think of it as just Instacart getting more footprint like is it that simple i i was like am i missing something it it just felt like instacart eating up a smaller company that helps it expand its footprint Marianne, my, my read of this was instacart is moving more and more into the software side of things if you think about their their instacart platform they've been talking about a lot recently uh what they would like to do is sell software to a lot of grocery stores that's what rosie does they target independence instacart of course works more with major chains but you know if you have more software you can sell it to more people and who doesn't love high margin recurring revenue yeah i mean the the this is what their fourth acquisition over the past year. Actually, they recently acquired another company called Eversight. 
um, AI-powered pricing and promotions company. Um, I particularly did like the Rosie deal because I like that they're focusing on local and independent retailers and wholesalers and not just, you know, the big chain grocery stores. So I feel like that's kind of refreshing. Um, You know, the Instacart is doing that, you know, I, I, Hey, I'm all for helping the local and independence too. Yeah. It also flushes out kind of the Instacart, um, revenue mix because they do have the Instacart delivery service that we're all most familiar with. I've used it myself. Um, they also have their ads business, which is inside of their application. So as they have more total shoppers and more total uh, stores, they can run that game better. And then they have software services they offer out to individual, um, groceries and some smaller stuff, but those are the big ones that I think about. So to me, this is part of that. Is it surprising to you guys that we're seeing Instacart be so active ahead of this impending IPO? I feel like they've had a lot of like, they're, they're just making a lot of news, which I think probably helps their brand. So I guess I'm kind of answering their my question. But on the other end, I expect them to be kind of in their quiet period, no? Well, quiet I, period is, is statements versus actions. Sorry, Miriam. <laughs> right. No, no, no. I, that's very true, Alex. And I also think it's, and like we talked about in the past, I mean, Instacart you know, has had its share of cha- challenges over the past year and a half or so, but it's it's coming out ahead and it's kind of impressing all of us and a part of it may just be this strategy of of not putting all its eggs in one basket and um as it's doing here with this acquisition is another example of that well it also changed ceos you know that's always gonna mm-hmm. shake up how a company operates and where it puts its focus and uh attention and so a more acquisitive strategy at a minimum it's uh, it's a good uh good thing to do if you want full journalist employment on the business side so thank you for keeping us busy <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of a change in leadership, let's talk about our next theme, which is Kapoor Capital. It had a change in kind of who runs the fund. So very kind of dramatically earlier this year, Frida and Mitch Kapoor announced that they are stepping back from the firm and that they are being succeeded by two longtime partners, um, Ulili and Brian. And I was so excited to see them, you know, come out of the gate with now their largest fund to date. Under their leadership, they they were the two raising the fund since February 2021. So it's kind of a formalization, but I covered it this week, $126 million, all about backing founders of color and social impact ventures. What do we what do we think? Well, I've written about two of the companies that they've backed, including Daylight, a digital banking startup that's focused on the LGBTQ plus community, and Tomo Credit, which is um, was focused initially on on international students, but kind of broadening a little bit more. So uh, I don't know. Overall, I do I do love that um, this firm is focused on on underrepresented founders, and and Natasha, as you so eloquently wrote, they they do back it up with some numbers, right, in terms of, of founder mix. Oh, yeah. One thing I was like pretty impressed by was when Brian Dixon first joined, became partner at the fund. He was like, my goal is to get is to increase the number of founders who identify as a woman and or underrepresented person of color in the portfolio to above 50 percent. And in this fund, fund three, the one that he has raised, it's already made 15 investments and all of them have a founder who identifies as a underrepresented or a person of color. Um, and then I think around 46% investments have a founder who identify as a woman and 53% have a founder who identifies as black. So, I mean, talk about a diverse fund. Um, I also kind of loved that they were pretty candid in their uh, interview with me saying that like it's always going to be hard to raise money, even though Kapoor Capital has kind of seeded some of the biggest funds and backed impressive companies. Like they are taking on a new fund after a change in leadership. I was wondering how outside LPs uh, would react to that. And it sounds like they reacted pretty well considering the fund closing. <laughs> well, yeah, they did because this is 
Unlike the first fund, this one actually has external LPs, right? Where the first fund did not. So, um, and they shared a, a long list of some of those LPs, right? I think Bank of America was one. Twilio. I think, yeah. So Twilio, it's actually PayPal. Oh, yeah. Bank of America, PayPal, Twilio, Foot Locker, Blue Cross. I mean, a bunch of LPs, more than we usually see. To me, like what what I really see and, and what they told me is like we're seeing a fund for the first time except outside capital have new leaders you know it's it's going to be thinking bigger and being a little louder which is exciting to me to see during a time where you know a lot of the headlines we're also seeing is that during a downturn historically underrepresented people are going to be negatively impacted by this and Alex I know TC plus has been covering a lot about like the LP side of the story we did on the Wednesday episode too when you covered for me yeah yeah we just had uh Becca Skutek on from the TC plus side to talk about the LP conversation so it, it's definitely top of mind because I think that we often think about money just appearing randomly in the pockets of venture capitalists who then can go ahead and disperse the capital but it, you need to go upstream you need to go to the source I think and that's why this conversation is is very important um when we're talking about investing into underrepresented people, um, we talk about kind of making harder deals because those people just tend to not get as much attention. And that also applies a little bit to kind of more complex, more difficult things. And Natasha, I think that's when Countdown Capital comes into this conversation. Definitely. So Countdown Capital also made the news this week. It's raised $15 million to back the next industrial revolution. So exactly what you're saying, Alex, like... Investing in founders who are, quote, rebuilding the American industrial base and forging hard businesses at the earlier stages, end quote, is a lot different than, um, you know, a spray and pray approach we might see emerging fund managers do. Marianne, I know this is something you've kind of covered is, yeah. is, is, is industrial industries and antiquated. <laughs> well, yeah, I have to, I, no, I have to say, I, I love the premise of what the, this firm is doing because I've long had a, an interest in um, venture firms that are tackling what you might call non-sexy industries yes. um, and construction tech being one of them, which I've been covering for years and it's hugely important. And I, I actually what? really Marianne, like, yeah, I'm sorry. There's a country <laughs> song about tractors being sexy. That's famous. I mean, I thought construction tech would be <laughs> oh, top five most attractive. That's a great <laughs> song. It's actually I'll not. I'll have to look that up. <laughs> oh, you, but... you haven't heard. Oh, Lord. No, if only we could no. have songs on the show. We don't have the rights for I it. I know. I'm so sorry, Marianne. Back to, back no, to your No, maybe comment. in the... F- not at all. Maybe in the future we can incorporate songs. I'd like that. Um, but no, but seriously, I do I do love that Countdown Capital has focused on, you know, really important things or looking to back companies um, so, or sectors, companies and sectors such as supply chain, manufacturing, defense and energy. All of that's really important. Another interesting thing about this raise, it took them six weeks to raise $15 million for the second fund. And I think um, for the first fund, which was only about, was it $3 million? It took them several months. So didn't take them long to raise the second fund. Um, Some interesting LPs as well, right? We've got Craft Ventures, David Sachs, Homebrews, uh, Hunter Walk, Banana Capitals, Turner Novak. Um, Good for them. Yeah. All your besties, Alex. Not David Sachs. (laughs) <laughs> I had to I had to sneak that in there. I, I, I was I was debating this entire time if I was gonna bring up my views on David Sachs raising money for Ron DeSantis, but I uh I think you can probably guess what they are. Um so I'll go ahead and say strange company with the other people that I do like that are in the mix. <laughs> the the common thread between I think this story and Kapoor Capital is like LPs are still are still doing it. They're still betting on people that are like smart tackling big problems. And I think that's a little bit like positive news that's welcome based on like when I was at Always, I felt like it was a little bit more doom and gloom of like LPs are about to disappear and only back, you know, the Andreessen's and Sequoia's of the world. Well, here are two examples um, of them not doing that. 
I want to throw a caveat here and actually about money and scale, because Natasha, everything you just said is absolutely true. And it amounted in the latter case to a $15 million fund too. Now, nothing to sneeze at. It's more money than I have, God knows. But at the same time, it's not that much money. And here's the, the way that I'm starting to think about dollar figures in, in the venture space. Um, is it less than or equal to the amount of money that Andreessen will give to a Web3 company that has an idea? In this case, it's about a third as much as the average check that I'm seeing from Andreessen, which seems like $50 million for any Web3 company that they invest in, which is interesting because why is it so expensive? Well, one quick note, though, I think the founder of Countdown Capital brings it up. He says these companies, a lot of the bigger firms like Andreessen might shy away from investing in these sort of companies in the very early stages, but they're a lot more open to doing so at the later stages. So when Countdown Capital can come in, uh, fund them at the pre-seed stage, help them grow, then company or firms like Andreessen are more likely to say, okay, we'll back you in the later stage. So I think, you know, so what if it's only $15 million? You have to start somewhere. The pre-seed money, you know, helps them get off the ground. It's, it's okay. No, hard disagree. Why, why does every NFT startup need a bajillion dollars and we only get $15 million for hard stuff? Oh, Let's no, no. It. I think I think we actually do agree, though. Like, I think we agree that this is worthy. And yes, I would love to see more money flowing into this sort of firm. So don't get me wrong. But what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say, it doesn't make it any less relevant. So I think we actually do agree, Alex. Oh, no, I, I, this is the thing we should be investing in. In fact, there was an important venture capitalist. I think his name was Mark Andreessen, who wrote this essay that we all read about time to build. And if I was going to take that essay and put it into actionable format, I might found something like Countdown Capital and focus on the next industrial revolution versus Web3. the things you've seen from them. So <laughs> I, I definitely think there's like an, just my two cents. Like I, I struggle because like on one end, like I do get really upset when I see like the smaller funds targeted towards um, more historically overlooked demographics and ideas getting smaller checks. But I find optimism in one, the fact that venture is such a long-term game. And I imagine that we're going to be covering the same firms 10 years from now. And I'm optimistic that like those seeds that are planted right now will grow into something bigger. Take away even that optimism. I am like activation capital for historically overlooked founders. It it, it sits heavier. And yeah. I think if you are a privileged white male founder and you get a you know, $3 million seed check, you are going to spend that differently because you think you have follow-on capital waiting for you than someone who isn't a white male founder who gets 3 million. So in that way, I'm like, okay, I think this 3 million is going to go farther in a lot of ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'll just say, Andreessen is a very large firm. So I'm not exactly trying to be rude to the entire group. There's a lot of folks there who do other stuff, but I'm just, I, I just keep, this is a, a question I have about Web3 companies in general, which is why are they so expensive? You know, it's just oh, a shocking man. amount of money. I would read money. a story about that. Yeah. It's hype. crazy. Hype, hype. <laughs> oh, so Mar Marianne's argument is that because they're hypey, they just can raise more money. I, I'm just, they, you can do so much with little. I mean, we just saw two days of YC demo day, which the companies that- It's software. Yeah. I, Sorry. I guess. No, you're fine. Absolutely. No, no, I said, like, I agree with you. I agree with you. It's, it's software. Like, that's, if it was like building tractors, I would understand if I needed to raise a ton of money, but it's not building tractors. <laughs> I just, I have that song still playing in my head. You brought tractors again, and now it just, it, the chorus <laughs> is back. Oh my God. Okay. Um, we'll catch up offline about yeah, it. Yeah. We're all a little punchy. So let's, let's be brief on this last one. Cause it's not exactly our, our domain expertise, but um, we all thought that it was worth talking about, or at least mentioning the fact that the uh, European union, the EU is working on an AI act or a kind of law, if you will. And there does seem to be some implications about 
AI open source work and AI in general. And this fits, uh, Natasha, I think neatly into the conversation that we're seeing from China about AI and a kind of algorithmic regulation. And I'm kind of curious if, if uh, the US is going to end up on the right side of history here by being too incompetent at the federal level to pass something similar. Oh my God. Yeah. There, there's, there's so much like legal liability around being like slow to, to make a decision on these sorts of things. And so to me, like it, it stresses me out personally as, as more of like a reader than a reporter on this topic to be candid, to see it be like so in flux. So as you said, there is everything that's going on with the EU, but there's also like a piece that we had on the TC site recently. And I'll just read the headline because I think it was really well done, which is AI is getting better at generating porn. We might not be prepared for the consequences. And how many times have you guys seen a headline about not being prepared for the consequences? I that That's the hard part here. Mm. We know we're not prepared. Why are we not faster about this? There's so much... Yeah, obvious um, liability. Kyle and Amanda did a fabulous job reporting that one out too, as well. Um, I, that was really a fascinating read. It made me uh, open my mind to things that I'd never thought about before. Um, AI generated porn. Uh, it just there were some things in there that freaked me out, though. Like they were saying that um, AI could like maybe take a celebrity or I guess someone and and make you know something pornographic out of their image or something like that. Well, that kind of freaks me out, right? Like, because then it might, if someone sees that, they could misinterpret and think that that individual actually did, like, voluntarily, I guess, decide to do something pornographic. Does that, am I making any sense? Yeah. Here? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this comes into the question of what can these tools be used for? In fact, in kind of a separate way, there was an AI generated picture that won an art prize and people were annoyed about that. And I think this all goes to show from the EU to China to the the porn question to the the what is art question is that AI is going to be bringing up a lot of very interesting and difficult moral questions for us all to kind of grapple with. And I don't think we know what the consequences are going to be to Natasha's point partially because I don't think we have enough knowledge of what's coming to actually know what to prepare for. Um, on one hand, doll E and the other kind of like AI generating services are really fun to play with. I've, I've put in some funny mm. things like Metallica playing on Mars. That was hilarious. Yeah. I had a great time. Yeah. With that. Um, yeah. But if you can deep fake someone's, you know, if you can do something kind of malicious with it, it's much worse. Yeah, exactly. And and actually, I found all that really interesting because just uh, about two weeks ago, my teenage son had us all crowded into his room around his computer showing us Midjourney, which is actually the same um, the same site where that generated the picture that won the art prize, which is kind of fascinating. Huh. And it is really incredible, like putting in prompts and seeing how quickly that this uh, AI produces images that are actually really incredible and realistic looking and very, very creative. It, it is it is mind blowing. Um, and, and to like, as a funny anecdote, he put in my name today just to see like for the heck of it, what, what it might uh, generate. And it just, a woman came up that didn't really look much like me except having dark hair. So it's not picking up off of Google. I don't think. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There but, we go. <laughs> but last, last thing I want to make about this point, I, I was like kind of mixed um, about this art winning the prize, um, you know, kind of like, gosh, I don't know, like, should he have won? Should he not have won? But then the quote in this New York times piece, by the, the guy that won kind of pissed me off. Um, this isn't going to stop art is dead, dude. It's over AI won, humans lost. I mean, whoa, that's not cool. I mean, it's also that's just, just factually incorrect. And it's just a shitty thing to say when you've won. Why you've, make enemies? Yeah, just not cool. 
Well, magnanimity is in short supply. Um, I know we have to go, but I'm not going to lie. When Marianne started off her story, we were all gathered around my teenage son's computer. I was terrified about where we were going with that. And it all ended up being okay. So that's good. All is well, it's a- but it's well. <laughs> <laughs> my, my last note on the AI conversation is like, it's such a reminder that like, it's not just like a buzzword. It is still like new technology. I feel like sometimes we forget about it. And I'm kind of imagining this episode is like going to be a time capsule at some point where it's like, True. us talking about like consequences when like, mm-hmm. I don't know how many years from now we're going to like feel like we have a better grasp on it. But some, some people, including me, like kind of tossed away AI as like this larger than life thing. And it's kind of helpful to have like very specific examples, even like an art debate to like talk about. It just, it helps me get closer to getting it. Yeah. You know, I think we were all waiting for advanced generalized uh, artificial intelligence, you know, something that was like like a a computer you talk to and is smarter than you, like we see in science fiction and so forth. But it, it appears instead it's going to be very advanced machine learning systems set up that are tuned to particular activities for the meantime. Maybe those all get stitched together in the future to something that's a bit more meta. But for now, it does seem to be targeted, which is at once encouraging and also a little bit limiting, but given the consequences, perhaps for the best. Um, But ladies and gentlemen, we got to go. But before we do, Natasha, we have a code to give out. Huzzah. Woo woo. So you can use code equity for 15% off your disrupt tickets. We are all going to be there. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be so fun. Equity is going to be on stage actually opening up the show. So use code equity, 15% off your ticket. That's a great deal. Come hang out. Come hang out. I'm going to hug I, you guys. I'm going to SF for a week for this show. So please come out so I can at least give you a high five. Hugs, maybe not because of COVID, but at least we can, <laughs> we can high five over it. Um, Mary and Natasha, as always, an absolute treat. And uh, this week has been a lot. Let us go have a weekend. <laughs> Amen. Take care. <laughs> All right. Bye. bye.